I am Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. We are co-hosts for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And on the phone with us from London is Benjamin Ensor, Vice President and Research Director. Welcome, Benjamin. Thank you. So, Benjamin, let's add some things together. You have digital banks that are getting a better foothold in the marketplace. You have players like Venmo, who really become the darlings of the millennials. You have some of the social platforms offering peer-to-peer lending. And you have a lot of banks rethinking their physical space, the branches themselves, and what does it do for them? When you add all this together, are banks, as we know them, relevant in 10 years? That's such a great question, um, because banks have to exist in a, in a modern economy, but whether they have that relevance in their customers' everyday lives is an open question, because what we've seen over the last four or five years is a growing number of digital disruptors that are coming in and attacking little pieces of banks' business and providing a better way to do this, a faster way to do that, a cheaper way to do this. And what that's gradually doing is gradually eating away um, towards the core of banks' businesses. And it's not hard to imagine a world in which customers don't necessarily need banks for many of the services that banks provide today, and that banks just become a sort of dumb money pipe in the background, managing and processing the transactions and acting as a safe place to store money, but not really having any kind of retail uh, relationship with their customers. Is this a bit like the frog in the hot water where the frog really doesn't recognize that the water is getting hotter and hotter? Or do banks see this for what it is, which is in some ways an existential threat to each bank's business, not the banking industry as a whole? It's so interesting. We see such big differences between banks. There are some banks that have been alive to this threat for five or even 10 years and you know, taking a whole series of steps to change the way they think, change the way they do business, um, and really start thinking differently about how they create and provide value to their customers. Meanwhile, there are other banks that, yes, absolutely are just like the frog in the hot water, that aren't focused on this. They're just looking at their business in the same old way, and they're not looking at what their customers are doing. They're not thinking about how their customers are changing, and they don't see what's happening to them. Benjamin, can you give us an example of one of those banks who recognized that threat, you know, 10 years ago you were mentioning in your previous statement? One of the standard bearers is BBVA in, in Spain, though it, though it operates in many other countries like Mexico and the United States. And the chairman there, Francisco Gonzalez, um, started talking about the importance of digital um, around about 10 years ago. You know, he talks about how BBVA needs to become more like a software company. Now, he doesn't mean that it should become a software company or that they should start selling, I don't know, games or um, voice over IP software. But what he means is they need to think in the way that software companies think and think about how they can use digital technologies to create and deliver more value to their customers. So, Benjamin, before we started recording, you were discussing the shift that some banks are making from selling products to being more outcome driven, focusing on what the customer is trying to achieve. Is that what you're describing in the BVA example? It's very easy for banks to remain in the mindset of, we are a company that sells financial products. You know, if customers want a credit card, a loan, a mortgage, uh, an investment fund, we've got it. You know, come to us and we've got a lot of products that you can buy. Because customers don't want to buy financial products. Those aren't the outcome. You know, you don't wake up thinking, I want a new credit card today. Um, What you actually want is for your shopping to be easier. You want to be able to afford more stuff. You want to be able to save up for your wedding, for a a holiday, uh, whatever it is. Um, So the outcomes that you actually want are not directly related to the products the banks sell today. 
But this isn't a shift in mindset alone. Banks can no longer assume that customers will stay with them through their life events, get their checking, savings, car loans, so on. The banking business model as we know it is under attack. So aside from the changing customer dynamic that we've talked about, why is that? Because what's happening is the disruptors, you know, they're clever people, they're trying to, you know, develop and win, you know, build successful businesses. They're attacking the profitable parts of banks' businesses. And what banks have done for years is they cross-subsidize. Right? There are successful parts of the business and there are less successful parts of the business. And that's fine when you're competing with other companies that do much the same thing as you. What's happening now is we're starting to see disruptors coming in and, let's say, peer-to-peer currency exchange suddenly attacking you know, a highly profitable part of banks' business. So if the profits pools all get eaten away, what are you left with? You're left with a lot of the costly infrastructure. So it's interesting. We Our CX index work, which actually looks at the, the bank's customers' experiences and how they perceive and value them. So if you look at the overall score of, of the CX, which includes things like how well do they run their business, how easy is to do business with them, how loyal I am, and those types of things, they're generally okay. But when you look at some of the markers for the emotional attachment, it generally falls off a cliff. So just to give you some sense of the numbers, which is there's a 27-point difference between the industry benchmark for the overall CX score and the extent to which the customer feels valued. There's a 42-point drop in the score in the extent to which the customer loyalty is rewarded, meaning the customer is essentially operating as a free agent, but in a, in a world of inertia, they're not going anywhere. But what you're describing is now they're being pursued, that that inertia is going to transition itself to kind of like a much more liquid market where customers are going to flow back and forth among banks. The, the real challenge here is exactly the one you pinned down, is how, how do you create that kind of emotional bond with your customer? How do you make customers care? And there's, there's a lot of banks like, um, like BMO in Canada or in Tessa San Paolo in Italy that have done small things like making it much easier for a customer on a mobile app or on their website to set up an appointment with someone in the branch. Um, we've seen other banks like some of the Dutch banks um, sending their employees out to visit customers in their homes in the evenings you know, because many, many customers are busy, right? They work all day. They're looking after children, whatever. Um, so the banks are trying to say, okay, how can we fit in with our customers' lifestyles instead of only being open in working hours? You know, how can we be more flexible, more available, and make it easier for our customers to reach our people to talk about the things that actually matter to them? So, Benjamin, you, men- you mentioned CX, and I had the pleasure of meeting one of the executives of a bank in Europe and what they did is at onset of the CX, they tied it very quickly to their people strategy, to HR, because they realized that much of their employees were centered on processing transactions. They were centered on the inward-facing part of the bank. They weren't skilled nor gold um, at actually trying to connect to the customer, which is the big game here. Have you, have you seen that transition where CX is, is reconnecting sort of who, who my people are and how do they engage it at the branch level, over the phone, through customer service channels and all that type of stuff? Yes, that's a, that's a real challenge for, for many banks because um, the people that bank, many banks were employing 20, 30 years ago into, into their branch networks were typically people who were good at adding up. Right? That's what you need <laughs> in a branch, right? Somebody who can add up, somebody who can count coins and so on. Um, but those are not necessarily the skills um, that those employees need today. So a lot of banks are working hard at how do we, how do we retrain our employees? How do we um, teach our employees new skills and new ways of interacting with customers? But the, the example you gave from the European bank um, is really, really interesting. I've seen that a number of times where, yes, banks, are, like companies in other sectors, a few banks have recognized the 
really strong connection between the employee experience and the customer experience because what happens is employees who like their employer, who are proud of where they work, who feel that they're being treated well, who are happy, want the customers to do business with the bank, right? Because they're proud of it. It's a good firm to work for. They want the customer. They believe in the company they're working for. And that comes through emotionally in the tone of voice, in the way they deal with customers, in their willingness to go the extra mile, um, to try and you know, make a special moment for a customer, or to really try and help customer to follow up and so on. So another part of connecting to the customer is understanding them. So that leads me to the next question about retail banks' data strategy. Can you talk a little bit about that, Benjamin? Yes, I think I mean, there's, there's obviously there's both a qualitative aspect to understanding customers of actually interacting with real customers, studying real customers and so on, as well as a quantitative angle in, in looking at the data and the information that you have about customers. And you need to do both of those, but let's focus on the, focusing on the data piece. Um, banks sit on this sort of goldmine of, of data, but historically banks haven't really done anything with that data. Um, and one of the things I sometimes say to some of our clients is, you know, what would Google do if Google had the data that you have? Um, and many of the banks really haven't started trying to use that data and really trying to access that treasure trove of insight. Yeah, we had some conversations earlier with, with Pascal and also with Brian Hopkins, one on digital platforms and one on new technology. And the, the, both conversations centered on one point, which was that you can't really win in digital by just cleaning up the front end, cleaning up the systems of engagement. You have to look hard at your ability to unlock the true value of data and make it a currency of your business, whether it's within the, you know, your four walls or part of your overall ecosystem. And I think there's a lesson here for banks because there's a natural inclination to go fix the front end, to fix the app, put an app out or something like that. But really looking – the other path is to look hard at what is the, the data environment that I'm playing with and can I convert that to a true currency of the business? And I think that's perhaps the biggest distinction that I see between banks is the banks that understand that digital business transformation is about fundamentally changing um, the entire bank and banks that think, oh, we can just, you know, we can just develop an app or we can just, you know, put a pretty front end on it. A lot of banks are sitting on vintage, antiquated systems. Some of those systems work quite well, some of them not so well. Most banks have far too many systems and far too many of their um, IT people getting tied up in keeping those systems running. Occasionally those systems fall over, causing embarrassing problems. Um, but the biggest challenge is precisely what you're saying about how do you get that data out of those legacy systems so that you can use it and use it to create new value and thinking about data as a valuable currency for, the, for your business. These concepts, data as a currency, rehauling or connecting legacy systems, technology debt, there's a big digital transformation effort that has to take place. Who should be leading that effort at banks? Ultimately, it has to come from, from the chief executive or, or, or chairman. Um, it has to come from the, the very top of the company because if the top of the company, if the, if the senior executives don't believe in it, very, very difficult to drive it from the bottom up. We see you know, lots of great people doing great work, um, but if you haven't got um, a chief executive who really believes in becoming a more customer-centric organization and, and driving through that digital transformation, if you've got a chief executive who's got other priorities, um, it becomes very, very difficult to do. So in almost all the banks that we see that are really making great progress, on digital transformation. 
the chief executive is strongly behind the initiative, if not actually driving it. Yeah, and it goes to sort of the, the fluency of the CEO in terms of the nature of digital, the nature of technology, when you consider technology as it is and the impact of artificial intelligence and machine learning, which is going to be so central to banking going forward. And it goes to the, the, the fluency or competency of the board as well. It's one thing to be digitally native. I mean, the CEO is fundamentally and already comfortable with technology. It's another where the leadership team didn't grow up and that's the same space and needs now to become to take lead of technology where they're not comfortable with technology. That's sort of a, a hard task at the leadership level. I agree. There's a really interesting um, thing here. If you look across some different countries, there's a couple of countries in the world like Poland, like Turkey, where you have a number of very advanced banks that have really embraced digital technology. And you can look at those countries and you can say, well, why has that happened? And, and some of it's competitive, you know, that when you get one or two banks starting to innovate, you know, others follow. But one of the things is also that some of those banks have slightly younger leadership. Um, I'm not that young myself, so I don't, I'm not trying to be ageist about it. But if you've got a generation of leadership who grew up in a slightly different era um, or just more, more technology savvy, regardless of their age, it is sometimes easier for them to understand and really grasp um, digital what we see in a few companies is things like reverse mentoring, where senior executives are sometimes getting someone, you know, typically from their sort of children's generation, um, you know, just bringing them up to speed. Um, I remember talking to a very senior executive at one of the um, one, one of the European banks, and she'd spent, you know, two hours educating her chief legal officer about Facebook um, and about Twitter, just because you know the bank was getting so frustrated with the legal team simply not understanding how customers were using things. And she said, look, I've just got to, I've got to educate the other senior executives because if they don't understand these technologies, if they don't understand the world our customers live in, we're not going to thrive. Yeah, and even the concept of if you look at that Facebook right now offers peer-to-peer lending, it's not Facebook as a social tool, but it's Facebook as an existing and much more formidable competitor going forward and recognizing it that the banking threat is not only within the banking sector at this point in time. Completely. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic and, and why the disruptors are so dangerous, because particularly the, the sort of Amazon, Google, Amazon, Facebook, you know, Baidu, Tencent, those kind of Alipay, sorry, Alibaba um, companies, you know, they are so um, entrenched, so involved in their customers' lives. They have so many insights into their customers that, and indeed, a growing, you know, growing customer loyalty, growing brand recognition, growing amount of trust they are potentially formidable competitors to the banks. And as you say, they are, each of them is sort of inching towards financial services. They, they're not going to become banks because who wants to be regulated, but they will offer financial services. Right. So Benjamin, you brought up Google earlier, and these are businesses similar to Facebook and, and Alibaba that are centered on converting the power of data to delivering experiences tied to the customer's context and tied to their lives. This is their basic strength. So what is, what is learnable in the fact that they're now coming into the banking? Is it they're going to become banks or they're going to avoid the regulatory framework, as you described? Or is there another role that they'll play in terms of creating a threat to the bank? So the danger for banks is that they gradually get completely disintermediated from the customer relationship and that these um, new platforms come between them and their customers and that the banks start to become an afterthought, that they become just providers of products. Right. And do you think as, as banks try to sort of catch up and, and change their mindset, transform digitally, think differently about the customer, 
Can they do that organically? Or some of the banks you mentioned, for example, in Poland, it, does this sort of cause a, a an acquisition spree to bring in the talent, the mindset, in some cases, bring in the systems that will become the systems of the future? Acquisitions only get you so far. Um, acquisitions are great if you can you know, get a piece of technology or get a great group of people. The danger with an acquisition, of course, is that you can't integrate the technology or you lose all the good people. And it doesn't really solve the problem. If you set up a separate subsidiary or you try and buy an acquisition, it doesn't actually solve your problem. It doesn't, it doesn't reform or transform your core business. So what banks have actually got to do is they've got to transform their, their core business. They've got to change them, the mindset in their existing businesses. Then, if they've done that, then yes, at that point, you can really start working with fintechs and acquiring startups and so on. And we see some leaders, you know, firms like, let's say, Barclays or BBVA, um, working with dozens of startups, launching hackathons and um, uh, acquiring startups, setting up accelerators, visas, doing the same kind of thing. But it, that comes after they've started going through that cultural change, after that recognition that they have to transform. If you try and transform just by acquiring companies, you'll fail. So one way we can look at that is the banks act, sort of acting like a venture capitalist where they'll put money in the marketplace, seed these firms, grow these startups, and they'll incubate them, bring them into the ecosystem so they can make money with a long-term intent to acquire them after they themselves have made some important changes in their own field of play. I think that's exactly right, um, except that it's the, the difference with event, compared with a venture capital firm is the venture capital firm is in, investing purely in the, with the hope of a long-term financial return, whereas where banks are, or the smart banks at least, that are investing in startups, they're doing it with the hope that that will um, help them develop their core business, right? that they will be able to integrate these some of these startups into their businesses in the long run. So it's not purely a financial play. It's also about the long-term health of their existing business and changing their existing business. Right. We started this conversation with a comment about the existential threat to banks and will they still be relevant in 10 years? And we've looked at some of the big changes these banks have to make, which are fairly profound when you think about the standpoint of people and technology as being major upheavals in the bank's when you think about all this, Benjamin, what does it all mean for banks? It means banks need to think differently about how they create value for customers. Um, and they need to act now. There's a lot of hype. It's easy to exaggerate how quickly some of these changes will happen, but these changes are happening. Banks are like super tankers. They're really slow to turn. If you don't start turning now, you're not going to turn fast enough. That's great. Thank you so much for your time, Benjamin, today. Thank you. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.